Thank you. Thank you, worship team. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, that was outstanding. And I love that song, 10,000 Reasons. And the first, the first time I ever heard it was the first time James led us, uh, in that song in, uh, church here. And I'd never heard it before. And I thought, man, that's, that's, I love that song. It's just so great. And, uh, I was listening to Christian radio a few weeks after that and I caught the original artists singing it. And I thought, wow, that was such a letdown. I mean, James's version was so much better than the one on the radio. And he's actually come up with a couple different arrangements. I, I kind of like the up-tempo stuff myself, but, uh, man, just, uh, his versions are so much better than the radio, so just say, oh no. Um, open the Word of God with me, please, to Acts 15. And while, you, yes. Okay. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll pray. Um, Let's see. David Emerson, uh, remind me, what, what's Janet's dad's first name? He attends the Catholic Church on Sunday. She uh, drops him off, comes here, stays as late as she can, and goes, gets him. So we'll pray for his physical situation. David, uh, anybody know his first name? Howard. Howard. Okay, let's pray for Howard. Okay. We're talking about passing out, uh, in church. I remember the time your dad passed out. Back there in the middle of the message. I hope it wasn't my fault and everything worked out, but, uh, sometimes you worry about things like that as a minister. Uh, you're turning or have turned to Acts 15, but let me uh, begin by referring to, uh, a wonderful statement in Romans 1. Uh, in this passage, we're told that the gospel, and Mel will tell you, gospel is a word that means good news. The gospel is the power of God, not a power of God like there are five different options, but the power of God for salvation to everyone. This is God's Equal Rights Amendment to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This morning we're going to think about one thing the church has got to get right. Christians disagree about a lot of different things on the fringes, uh, including some things that are really important. But the one thing that individual Christians must understand and get clear, that local churches must get right, that denominations and the universal capital C body of Christ must get right, is the gospel, the good news, because it's the power of God for salvation. And I want to talk about two aspects of that today through the prism of Acts 15. I want to talk about the content and the mechanism of the gospel. The content is what the gospel actually is. And that's pretty easy because in 1 Corinthians we're just flat told That the gospel is the truth that Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Now, Christ's death wasn't just as a virtuous martyr. It was an SAS. That stands for Substitutionary Atoning Sacrifice. Okay? Uh, In baseball, when somebody pinch hits, they're substituting for somebody else. Right? When you have a substitute teacher at school, that teacher is substituting for another teacher. Jesus' death was a substitute. He paid the debt that we owe God morally for us in our place. Okay, That's what his death was. And, as I often say, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven, but the resurrected one is the only one who can. His death can't possibly give eternal life to anybody else if he's still dead. Right, Bryce? 
The gospel isn't just the glorious truth that Christ died for our sins. It's the truth that three days later he was raised from the dead. Literal. If you went back in the time machine, you see the empty tomb and the risen Christ. Bodily. Not somebody thought they saw a spirit or a spirit lives on in the apostles, but his dead body was supernaturally transformed and his spirit went back into it. Supernatural. That means Richard Dawkins, the God delusion, greatest atheist in the world, can't reproduce this in a laboratory for you. So God can do it, but we can't. And it's a resurrection, not resuscitation. If you're resuscitated, you die again. This is resurrection. That's the content of the gospel. You need to know that. Uh, you need to understand that. You need to embrace that if you've never done so. And we need to live consistently with that. Uh, our logo emphasizes the cross and the resurrection, because that's what the gospel is, right? That's the content of the gospel. But let's move on to the second issue about the gospel that we're going to think about through the prism of our passage this morning. What's the mechanism of the gospel? How do you get all this wonderful stuff Jesus alone did to count for you? And more importantly, how do I get it to count for me? Well, Ephesians 2.8.9 is very clear. And it says, for by grace. Now, I grew up, the only time I heard grace was when the Winter Olympics came along and we saw figure skaters and we were told how graceful they are. So when I'm in Sunday school in first grade, I'm thinking figure skaters. When I hear about grace, that's the only time I ever heard that term used. Grace means unmerited favor or blessing. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't unearn it. You can't undeserve it. For by God's grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith is a rational act, but it's not a meritorious work. It's the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. It's active, receptive trust in Christ. So for by grace, the mechanism is by grace. God's power, not ours. God's unmerited favor, not something that we deserve. Through faith, which is active, receptive trust in Christ, not of yourselves. The whole salvation process of the gospel is the gift of God. There's no price tag on it. It's not of your good works. So saved people have nothing to brag about, but they have someone to brag about, <laughs> right? Ephesians 2 is quoted a lot. I like Romans 4 because it's not quoted as much. To the one who does not work, to the one who does not try to earn his or her own salvation by some kind of religious mechanism or righteous mechanism or rituals or something like that, doesn't work, but what do they do? The believing is not working by definition. It's antithetical. To the one who does not work but believes in him, capital H, who justifies the ungodly. Now, what's the content of the gospel? Christ died for our sins, substitutionary atoning sacrifice, and rose again. Who's the one, capital H, him, who justifies the ungodly because of his substitutionary atoning sacrifice? So to the one lowercase, that could be you today, me a long time ago at a Baptist church, uh, at a revival, to the one who does not work, try to earn their own salvation, even to staple that onto the cross or something, but believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly because he died for the ungodly sins, his, the one who doesn't work, his, the ungodly person who believes in Christ, his faith, empty, receptive trust, non-meritorious, but very specific, and not just mental assent, but full consent of the will, is reckoned as plus R. Here's the cool thing about the gospel. On the cross, our sins were imputed to Christ and judged. Everything Blanche Britain has ever done, or ever will do, that's offensive to God, was paid for by the Lord Jesus on the cross, okay? 
So when Blanche Britton initially trusts Jesus as Savior, that payment is applied to her account, and God, as it were, wipes the blackboard clean. Then he throws the blackboard away, and he pulls out your uh, personnel records, and he gets a big indelible ink blotter that says plus R on top of it, because just getting your sins wiped clean, it's just wiping out a debt, brings you to zero. You have no capital. But in the same way our sins were imputed to Christ and judged and paid for on the cross, Shannon, this is why it's good news. When the sinner believes, not only is that debt, that payment applied to our debt, but we are given the righteous standing of Christ as far as our position uh, relative to heaven's concern. It's called justification by faith. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose again. And the mechanism for accessing that is by God's grace, through faith alone in Christ alone. And we're going to think about that to the prism of a debate the early church had on these very things in Acts 15 here in a couple of moments. But first, let's pray for uh, our teachability uh, to God's word. Let's pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, and our our active military, and also for uh, Jan's dad again, okay? Father, we thank you that uh, you're giving us a new week. And for us as believers in Christ, the first significant thing we do on the first day of the new week you're giving us is to meet with believers of like mind and faith uh, to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate the Savior, to think through your word, to sing worship uh, to you, uh, to commune and encourage other believers to love and good works, uh, and uh, to pray to get together for your will. Uh, we do pray for Janet's dad. We pray that whatever medical assistance he needs, he'll get. But we pray you might be pleased to work over and above that uh, according to your your purpose uh, this morning. I pray you'd help uh, Janet to be able to, to relax a little bit and rest in your uh, providence in this and let her be an encouragement and a blessing to her father. Uh, we pray, Father, for those here locally who protect us and serve, and I think especially of believers that are firefighters and believers that are peace officers who really sense a real calling uh, to to this profession, to this noble work that they do. I pray especially for those guys and gals that you keep them consistent with their their convictions, their temptations to cut corners, and I pray you would uh, help them overcome that. I pray you'd protect them and bless their families because their families make many sacrifices and suffer many, many uh, fears and concerns because of what uh, their loved one is doing. We pray for our active military. Uh, we thank you for those who serve uh, the flag and country and uh, reinforce and protect our, our freedoms. Uh, we pray for their unbelievably difficult missions they're given, not just to defeat an enemy in the battlefield, but to build nations and uh, to tolerate all kinds of perversity by our allies and figure out exactly what the best thing we can possibly do to further the mission. We pray for those who are devising missions and strategies. We pray for those who actually have to carry those things out. And again, we pray especially for believers in those roles uh, that you give them the wisdom they need to maintain their integrity to have a consistent witness, and to be very effective in the roles and the tasks that they're given. Uh, we pray especially for them and their families, as always. 
Uh, Father, we thank you for each one who's here this morning. Uh, we pray that uh, you'd be glorified and your Holy Spirit would illumine this text to us that we might understand it, believe it, and apply the implications in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, here for the last couple of months, I think, I found this graphic I like to use. I, I heard somebody, I think at Dallas Seminary, use the analogy that when we look around at our life, a lot of times it looks like a mess. But from God's side, as he looks down from heaven, it looks like a masterpiece. And so I've heard that analogy. That's not my idea. But I just was doing a Google search for front and back of a tapestry just so I could show you what it looks like. And quite often, you know, you guys, most of you know what that is. That's the back of a tapestry. Uh, and so a lot of times you live life and from our limited perspective, because, Glenna, we have so, you know, there are 10 billion factors involved in anything. And we know about three of them a lot of times. I am quite often only know two of them. So it's easy, we have such little information to second-guess God or be convinced it's not working or he doesn't know what he's doing. So HVP, by the way, is just human viewpoint. So a lot of times you look around uh, your life and it looks like a big mess from the human viewpoint. Right, Bryce? But if you turn that tapestry around, it's like we're on earth looking at the back side of the tapestry. God looking down from heaven sees that. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty cool tapestry. And I'm not that much into tapestries, to tell you the truth. Plus, I'm colorblind, so that doesn't help either. But that's enough about my problems. Um, but that's kind of a masterpiece, and that's a mess. But it's really the same thing, right? So anyway, uh, recently I kind of gave a challenge. Uh, I said, uh, I have no idea what that's supposed to depict. But when you've got little angels flying around, it's a little scary to me. But that's just me. So anyway, I, I issued a challenge that somebody find out what this thing means. And uh, last Sunday, between first and second hour, I got a text from a man, Joe Franks. And he gave me that link on the Internet. And uh, I'm going to show you what that looks like, if I can find my mouse. Yeah, so anyway, this guy did a Google search, and somehow or other he figured out what this is. And I think before we move on this morning, especially now that i found my mouse, we're going to do something we've never done before. Watch. Fun with computers. You can actually copy this. Okay. Then we're going to go to the World Wide Web, which Al Gore invented. He also invented uh, global warming. He, he invented global warming and the Internet, and he claimed to invent both. So, just so you know. Yeah, and I do... I do Norton Safe Search because I don't like to go to sketchy websites. So that's just me. Paste it in there. Michelle, you have such good taste in men. I mean, he, he found this for me. This tapestry is called the Union of the Duchy of Urbino with the Church. Now, I, I don't know what that means, but I'm just telling you, that's what it is. And... uh you blow this thing up, and yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. It's not that cool, but uh, yeah. That's what it looks like up close. So, Joe, I've been bragging on you, because, I mean, your research skills are really quite amazing. That was awesome. So, uh, anyway, that's one reason he's one of many heroes of the week this week, because you want to know. Aren't you glad you came to church now? Yeah, I know you are. Okay, let's look at... Uh, Acts 15, from the standpoint of getting the gospel right, the one thing the church has got to get right is the gospel, both the content of the gospel and the mechanism by which people like us can receive 
the gospel. The passage starts with dissension, moves to discussion, and ends up with a stated decision. Uh, the apostles affirm salvation is by grace through faith, and you can't earn it and deserve it, but somebody has earned it and deserved it for you, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at verses 1 through 5, dissension in the capital C dash H-U-R-C-H means capital C church, the body of believers, here specifically the church in Antioch of Syria. Look at verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, the Jerusalem area, but not by the authority of the apostles, as it turns out. Some men came from in and around Jerusalem to Antioch Bible Fellowship, where Paul and Barnabas are ministering in the aftermath of their first missionary journey. And these these self-appointed spiritual fruit inspectors start raining on Paul's parade. And basically says everything that happened in Acts 13 and 14, the first missionary journey, wasn't valid. Uh, they're teaching the brethren at Antioch Bible Church, 99% of whom were not Jewish in their background. They were Greek, Roman, Gentiles. Unless you are circumcised, unless you become an active proselyte to Judaism and submit to the ritual and then obey the law, you cannot be saved. How dare you dirty pagan Gentiles think all you've got to do is believe in Jesus. You've got to pre-qualify first. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, that's called understatement. I think they were really hot under the collar, right? I think they were unhappy. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with the uh, folks from the Jerusalem area who said Gentiles have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to pre-qualify before they can believe in Jesus and be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension debate with that party of people, the brethren in and around Antioch Bible Fellowship determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem. You can always go up to Jerusalem because it's the top of a mountain. You always go down from Jerusalem no matter what direction you're going, north, south, east, or west. Uh, go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders and just hammer this thing out once and for all. Let's make it clear that the mechanism of salvation is by grace through faith, and you don't have to pre-qualify by becoming a Jew or signing a card or becoming a Baptist or anything. You know, It's crazy and you know, hard to believe. Therefore, being sent on their way with this commission, go down there and let's hammer this thing out with the apostles so we're all on the same page. Uh, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail as they're walking or riding horses south about 200 miles from Antioch down to Jerusalem, and they're bumping into groups of believers all along the way, and they're describing the conversion of the Gentiles we just read about in chapters 13 and 14, First Missionary Journey, and we're bringing great joy to believers all along the way because they're telling about people hearing about Christ and believing and receiving the salvation, even though the self-appointed fruit inspectors say it doesn't work that way. Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas and a small group from the Antioch church, they were received by the church there and the apostles and the elders of the church. And they, Paul and Barnabas, reported all that God had done with them in the first missionary journey. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, these are believers from a Jewish background who are very legalistic. There are some Christians today who are stricter than God on certain specific issues. And you have the freedom to hammer out more specific personal convictions than Scripture, and I've got some. 
But you don't have a right to use that as a litmus test of yours or anybody else's spirituality or to second guess anybody else's salvation or spirituality because they don't live by strictures that are stricter than scripture even though you choose to. You've got the right to do that, but you shouldn't do that. It's not nice. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed in Christ and were regenerate stood up saying, no, Gentiles can't just believe in Christ be saved. It's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. In effect, they're saying they've got to become Jews before they become Christians. And that makes Christianity just another sect of Judaism. Okay, let's put all this on a map. Uh, the brethren have come from the area of Jerusalem. The apostles didn't send them, but they said, stop rejoicing in your salvation. Stop rejoicing in all the good stuff Paul and Barnabas did, first missionary journey. None of those people are really saved because they didn't pre-qualify right. So the church says, you better go down there and talk that over with the apostles, make sure we're all on the same page. Now remember... Um, you're 200 miles away roughly here, but Antioch in Syria is the church that sends all of, uh, that initiates all the missionary journeys. We just finished the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas and Mark left Antioch. They went to Cyprus, spread the gospel to Gentiles. They always start in the synagogue with the Jews, but they end up just talking to the regular people too. Then up in Perga, John, better known as Mark, goes back home to his mom. He quits, but Paul and Barnabas go where? Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and then double back and go home. And so they're rejoicing in that. The church of Antioch is rejoicing in their salvation. Everything's going good. And these guys decide to rain on Paul's parade. Listen. Some people just love to rain on other people's parade. Just get over it. You know, I mean, it's going to happen. Don't be too surprised. Now, here's the logical, but... Um, invalid premise of, of this argument. Uh, they said, look, it makes sense that Jewish people who had the Old Testament, who had the prophets, and the prophets told them Jesus was coming, that the Messiah was coming. It makes sense that Jewish people who have been following God's rules and regs and have prophecies talking about Jesus, it makes sense they can hear about Jesus, believe in Him, and get saved. That's cool, of course. But it's not possible that Greek-Roman pagans can just hear about Jesus and get saved. Do you realize what they do in their religious rituals? you realize all the bizarre stuff they do? So the assumption was, since Jesus was Jewish, the Jewish Messiah, and since Jesus himself said, salvation is of the Jews, it made sense for some people who that were working out of good faith to assume that the Greco-Roman culture was so corrupt they would need to become Jews before they could believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. So in their mind, they're not saying you're not saved by faith. They're just saying only Jews can be saved by faith. That was the issue. And you might say, well, that's not a big issue for us. No, weird. Today is probably the other way around. There are a lot of Gentile Christians. Now that the, um, you know, the worldwide church is probably 99% Gentile, non-Jew, right? Uh, some Gentiles have problems with Jews who believe in Jesus and become Messianic Jews, but still want to celebrate Passover or still want to celebrate Day of Atonement through the prism of that is all about Jesus. And some Christians, Gentiles, wonder about that. So it's interesting. Today we kind of get the flip thing. But anytime you tell people there are pre-qualifications for sinners to get saved, 
The only prequalification for salvation is you've got to be a sinner. You know, that's the easy part, you know. Some of it's actually a lot of fun, you know, if you think about it. But that's the only prequalification necessary. So are, are we making Christianity a subcategory of Judaism or just another religion or what? They think they're doing the right thing, but they're not. So that's the dissension. Now look at verse 6 and following. Discussion. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall? I would love to get in a time machine. you got two options. We could get in a time machine, which hasn't been invented yet. Go back to fall 49 AD to Jerusalem and sit in the back of the room and watch this. Would that be awesome to have Peter, have all 11 apostles. James the apostle's dead. The James who's here is the half-brother of Jesus who became the leading elder slash pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, But you got 11 of the 12 apostles there. you got Paul and Barnabas. you got the pastor, leading elder of the church in Jerusalem, all in one setting. So you could do that, a time machine. That'd be pretty cool, right, Phyllis? Except there's a problem. You and I don't speak Aramaic, so we'd have no idea what they were saying. Option two, this shows you how good, smart God is. Rather than forcing everybody to go on a time trip, let us just give you timeless scripture you can translate in your own language, and you can read it in English. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to do it that way, okay? And watch this. You've got all these all-stars. This is like the all-star game of theologians saying, no, you don't have to tell them they got to pre-qualify. Who's, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him but justifies the ungodly. That person's faith is reckoned his righteousness. That's the way it works, okay, for everybody. So look at verse uh, uh, 6 through 11. Yeah, let's look at Peter. He, Peter's obviously the lead-off man because he always wants to you know, talk first and ask questions later, right? The apostles and the elders came together to look in this matter. We've got to hammer this thing out, all be saying the same thing, and all know we've got both uh, validation from God in his works through the apostles and validation from God from the Old Testament Scripture. So let's just talk about this. After there had been much debate, because you've got that one group that says, no, Gentiles can't be saved unless they become Jews first, uh, and that involves works and rituals, uh, Peter stood up and said, brethren, you remember that in the early days of the church, back in uh, 13, 14 years before, 35 A.D., God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles, he's thinking about Cornelius and his family, the Roman soldier and his household and friends in Caesarea, the Roman capital of the region, would hear the word of the gospel and do what? Get circumcised, become a Jew, submit to the rituals, and then believe and get saved. No. That they hear the gospel, believe and be saved. Right? See the idea. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, testified and validated in their own lives that they, in fact, had received the gift of eternal life, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts and our hearts by faith. Now, verse 10, Therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples the Gentile disciples, a yoke, Old Testament law, which neither our fathers nor we've been able to bear. Hey, Russell, the Old Testament law was never a ladder people could use to climb to God. It was a mirror that showed people in the Old Testament they were dirty and needed a Savior, needed forgiveness. Uh, it's never a glide path to earn your way to heaven. So why are we acting like that's a prequalification for, for Gentiles? Um, bottom line, verse 11, he says, but we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, and they are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, and we're saved by faith, and they're saved by faith. Let's hold your place there. Go back to chapter 10. Let's refresh our memory what Peter told 
this group of Gentiles when he was directly led by direct divine inspiration and revelation to go to the Gentiles. He was reluctant. He thought he would get spiritual cooties if he ate non-kosher food. And God said, don't worry about that anymore. We're in the New Testament. You don't have to worry about that. You can eat catfish and shrimp if you want to. If you eat too much, uh, you know, all that fried food's not good for you, but just, uh, you know, re- religiously it doesn't hurt you. Uh, look at chapter 10, verse 39. Peter's preaching, talking about Jesus. He says, we, the apostles, are witnesses of all the things Jesus did in the land of the Jews generally, in Jerusalem specifically, and yet they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up. Death of Christ, resurrection of Christ, that's the gospel. And granted, he'd become visible, not to everybody, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us, the apostles and others, up to 500 people at once in one occasion, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He was physically there, supernatural, literal, bodily resurrection. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one. He's the exclusive issue. Exclusive issuer of eternal life. He's the one who's the judge of the living and the dead. Look at this, bottom line. Verse 43, Peter says, To the Gentiles of Jesus, of him, all the Old Testament prophets bear witness that through his name, who and what he is, everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, in him receives what? Forgiveness of sins without any prequalifications. And he goes on. But let's go back to Acts 15. That's what Peter said. So that's pretty good. Very clear. Now, verse 12. Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's interesting. Luke, who's writing this book called Acts under inspiration, uh, he gives you a whole, two whole chapters about Paul's first missionary journey. But when he sums up what Paul and Barnabas say here in Jerusalem, he gives you one verse. Because he assumes you've already read chapters 13 and 14. So he's not going to record everything uh, Paul and Barnabas say here. But verse 12, here's a summary. All the people uh, meeting in this Jerusalem council meeting, it's called, uh, kept silent. And then they were listening not just to Peter, but now to Barnabas and Paul as they, those two men who just finished the first missionary journey, were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the apostles. God's clearly at work affirming Gentile salvation. The mechanism is by grace. You don't earn it, deserve it. It's through faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 13 through 18, we've had Peter, Paul, Barnabas, now James. Now again, uh, you had James and John, the brothers who were apostles, but James the apostle was martyred in Acts 12. So this has got to be a different James. And this is the James who wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He came to faith after the resurrection. He was a skeptic before the resurrection. But he's the pastor and one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem, which was called Jerusalem Bible Fellowship. Just say, so you'll know. Okay. Maybe not, but that's my opinion. Verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, Paul and Barnabas, James, the elder and pastor of the church in Jerusalem, half-brother Jesus, answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, Simon, which means listener. Jesus nicknamed him Rocky Peter because he wasn't a very good listener at the time, but he got to be a better listener. Simeon has related, Peter, how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name, and Gentiles who believe are part of God's family. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, uh, and he's going to cite a statement from Amos, the Old Testament promise prophet, uh, just as it's written, after these things, in the end of 
of the age. God says the Messiah will return and he will rebuild the household of David and his dynasty, ruling over the world from Jerusalem. I'll rebuild its ruins. Uh, I'll restore it so that the rest of mankind, not just the Jews, but all of humanity will seek the Lord in, that is, including all the Gentiles. They don't become Jews now. They're Gentiles and they're going to get saved in the millennium through faith in Christ, just like everybody's saved by faith now. You don't have to become a Jew first. Says the Lord who makes all these things known from long ago. So we've got apostolic experience, scripture lining up, and you got Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James as the four keynote speakers saying, you don't have to pre-qualify to be saved. You don't have to become a Baptist or a Catholic or a Methodist or a TBFer or a Jew before you can believe in, in Christ and be saved. You can be saved just as you are. Here's the cool thing. Nobody's so bad they don't need this. Nobody's so good they can't. Uh, nobody's so, so good they don't need it. Nobody's so bad they can't have it. I need to say that correctly, otherwise it's wrong. Okay. Now, real quick, no extra charge for this, but uh, there's a debate among uh, Christian thinkers at a broad level about how Paul talks about the gospel in his letters and how James talks about the gospel in his one letter. And in fact, there are a lot of people who are convinced Paul and James contradict each other. Uh, based on what they say in their New Testament books. So, some on the kind of left of the theological spectrum uh, will say that, in fact, Paul and James have different Gospels. Uh, some on the far right say that the way James defines salvation tells you that faith in Paul doesn't mean active receptive trust. It means commitment to obey and pre-qualify by doing a lot of good stuff. So the question is, are James and Paul in the New Testament friends or foes? Uh, here's the data. You have statements in Romans and Galatians where Paul just says, Paul's in the white here, that justification before God, being right in God's sight so you get to go to heaven when you die, is through faith, not works, period, over and out, end of sentence. Okay. But James specifically in James 2, uh, for a whole chapter says, uh, Abraham wasn't justified by faith. He was justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar. Um, and so it sounds like a contradiction, or it sounds like they're saying two different things, or maybe uh, Paul doesn't mean what it sounds like he means. He means what James means. That, you have that kind of an issue. Well, here's the solution real quickly on that. Uh, you're really talking about apples and oranges. James is talking about one type of salvation, and Paul's talking about a different type. Watch this. This is the key to it. I'll show you how this works in a moment. Trust me, but just start with the definition. When Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith in Romans and Galatians, which means anybody can be justified by faith. And by the way, where was Abraham when uh, God first called him? What country? Iraq. Ur of the Chaldees is in Iraq. Have you heard of it? It's in the headlines sometimes. Yeah. Uh, when uh, Paul's talking about Abraham and anyone being justified by faith, not works, he's talking about vertical, forensic, eternal justification before whom? God. When James is talking about Abraham being justified by works, not by faith, when he offers up his son on, a, on an altar, he's talking about justification. See, Shelby, I told you the light... Uh, Blue might not show up too good, but it's, it's okay here. Uh, he's talking about justification not before God going to heaven, but justification, validation of his 
convictions before people in a visible way. You think about obeying God, going to the wall for God, offering up a son after you've been waiting for what, 24 years for him to show up. That's something else. Now watch this. Here's the thing. When people get into these texts and don't notice that little thing, they're convinced they're contradicting or they're qualifying one another. But what do we know based on Acts 15, Scott? What do we know based on Acts 15 about where James and Paul are on the issue of how somebody is made right with God? Specifically Gentiles. Remember? Is, is James saying, no, no, no. Gentiles have to be saved by works. James is totally, 100% in agreement with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas on the issue of justification, go to heaven, vertical connection with God. In his letter, he's talking about something else. Okay, Now watch this. I know Savannah had a really good teacher at Cameron on Bible as literature, so she's seen this chart before. But this debate uh, between how do you correlate what James 2 says with what Paul says throughout, but especially since James refers to Abraham and Paul refers to Abraham in those two passages, Romans 4 Galatians 3. How do you correlate that? Because James is saying Abraham is justified by works, and Paul is saying just, uh, Abraham is justified by faith. So how do you correlate that? Here's how hard it is, okay? No Greek or Hebrew required, okay? See, that's a fanfare, meaning, listen up, this is going to be important, okay? Watch this. This is called correlation, okay? When Paul's talking about Abraham being justified by faith, he's referring to an incident in Genesis 15 that makes it very clear. No later than that point, Abraham had been justified by believing in the promises as God had made about a Savior coming. Okay, That's what he's talking about there. Is that what James is talking about in James 2? What is James talking about? He's talking about an event based on Alan Ross that took place at least 30 years later. You can't hold your breath that long, folks. I mean, trust me. Okay, This happens here. Here's how Abraham gets right with God. This is his vertical justification. This is him receiving eternal salvation. This is something 30 years later when as an incredibly strong, mature believer, he will literally do whatever God tells him to do. You want me to jump? The only question I'll ask is how high. In fact, I won't even ask that. I'll just jump as high as I can. That's what Abraham's doing here. This isn't the same thing, okay? Uh so you, are you telling me you've got to be able to sacrifice a child in order to be saved? That is Abraham's faith being declared when he's about as mature as you can get, and people all over the world still talk about that. How could you possibly do that? And of course, he didn't actually sacrifice him. The point was he was willing to sacrifice because uh, of where he was in his faith. So that's how hard that is. Okay, so. Just because that comes up from time to time, James and Paul disagree, that's the short version of how that all fits together. I hope that was helpful. If not, it doesn't matter. We're going to go right back to our pyramid and finish Acts 15. What did we see first? What was the dissension about? Can Gentiles simply believe in Christ to be saved, or do they have to become Jews first? Do they have to submit to rituals and rules and regulations, and then they're able to believe and get saved? That was the problem. Who discussed the problem? Who was the first speaker? The Apostle Peter? Think he's any good? He's pretty good. 
How many books did he write in the New Testament? That's pretty good. That's two more than you wrote. You know. Uh, then who followed that up? Paul and Barnabas? How many books did Barnabas write? I think one. I think he wrote Hebrews. That's just me. You can ask him in heaven. But that's conjecture. How many books did Paul write? Thirteen. Which is an unlucky number. But that's okay. It's bad luck to be superstitious. Don't worry about stuff like that. Okay? Unless you play baseball. Right, Phil? Those guys are very superstitious. So, so dissension. Discussion. We've got Peter. We've got Paul. We've got Barnabas. We've got James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, who agrees with them wholeheartedly about vertical salvation, eternal salvation through faith. Now we've got a decision. Let's look at that decision. Uh, verses uh, 19 through 29. Okay? If I can find it. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. We're not going to ask them to pre-qualify. We're going to tell them that Christ died for the sins, rose again through faith in Him. They can receive the gift of eternal life. It's a gift. It's of grace. They don't earn it or deserve it any more than we did. But, as believers, we're going to ask them to avoid a couple of things that are especially obnoxious to Jewish believers because we want Gentile believers and Jewish believers to get along. You know? So they don't separate over like color of the carpet or this, you know, how you set the chairs up and really big issues like that that we allow to, you know, kind of ruin everything. We, we're not going to do that. But there's some things that would just really rub Jewish believers the wrong way. We want them to abstain from stuff that they're Culture might say, as you can explain it away, abstain from things, foods offered to idols, contaminated by idols, from fornication, we'll talk about that in a minute, and from what's strangled, and from eating blood products, period. That doesn't mean blood transfusions, Jehovah's Witnesses. That means eating animal blood, which isn't good for you. Uh, if you like it, uh, under the law, you weren't supposed to do it. It really turn off uh, Jewish Christians, so just don't do it then. If you, if you eat blood, don't do it in front of Jewish uh, Messianic uh, believers are going to be bumped out. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city, uh, has in every city those who preach him every Sabbath day and Jewish Christians were still going to the synagogue, uh, since he's read in synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, the ones leading the meeting here in Jerusalem with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They didn't just send Paul and Barnabas back to say, yeah, the folks in Jerusalem agreed with everything I said, because that's just them testifying for themselves. We're going to send some extra people just to confirm everything you've said is what we're saying. We're all on the same page. So that's just kind of protection for Pastor Brad. So it's not just me telling somebody something that Ron did. It's two or three of us saying how great Ron is. And we'll read it exactly the way you wrote it. If we get a free t-shirt next week, whatever you want, we'll do it. So, uh, yeah, they sent Paul and Barnabas back with some other attendees, including... Uh, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. And he's important because he's going to go with Paul on the second missionary journey. And they sent this letter. This isn't an inspired New Testament letter, but it is inspired here in the text of Acts. And it said this, just to make sure everybody on the frontier understands Gentiles and Jews are all saved by faith alone in Christ alone. You don't have to pre-qualify. The apostles and the brethren who are elders at the church in Jerusalem to the brethren in Antioch in Syria and Cilicia uh, who are from among the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, believers from the greater Jerusalem area, to whom we gave no instruction, we didn't send them up there to tell you this, but they just misunderstood what's going on, 
have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. Because guess what? If you're in Antioch and the folks come up and say, hey, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised, what is their status? They're not saved, you know? If they die on their way to the synagogue, they're in trouble, right? So, uh, unsettling your souls, taking away your assurance of salvation, taking away your salvation, really, they're trying to do that. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, now that we're all on the same page, we've talked about the elephant in the room, no more pretending like nobody's saying the, the error that we're objecting to. We're going to keep it clear, keep it straight. To select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should count for something. I mean, Paul was stoned to death and the mob thought he was dead in Lystra. So when he says something, you know, somebody's been around a long, paid a price, they might have a vested interest in the good of what's going on and not just want to get rich and famous, even though Paul did get rich and famous, right? He's rich and famous in heaven. Therefore, we sent Judas and Silas, along with Paul and Barnabas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth, what happened in the meeting, for it seemed good to the, uh, to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you Gentiles no greater burdens than these essentials. And I'll explain this in a second. But I want you to abstain from certain things that would really gross out your Jewish brethren, uh, eating meats offered to idols at a Jewish, uh, at a pagan temple, being involved in fornication, porneia in a pagan temple, eating um, um, things strangled and, and eating blood. If you keep yourself from those things, we're going to be able to interact well, and that's fine. Let me read you a short uh, excerpt from a, a commentary on what's going on here. I think this will be... I'll be more concise if I read what uh, uh, I heard Marshall saying here, and then I'll explain a little bit about their their religious background that the Jews, Jewish Christians would have been turned off by. Uh, but watch this. It was one thing to secure the gospel from corruption. It was another to preserve the church from fragmentation uh, by the Jerusalem Council and by the word of the apostles. Um, in addition to affirming the fact that salvation was by grace through faith for Gentiles and Jews, at the same time, it was extremely important to maintain Jewish and Gentile solidarity in the one body of Christ. So how could uh, the apostles unite the church without compromising the gospel, or that is, defend the integrity of the gospel without sacrificing the unity of the church? Their answer reveals the greatness of the minds and the hearts of the apostles. Once the theological principle was established, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone for Gentiles and Jews, and that salvation was not required, they went on to make certain concessions. And then the next paragraph says this, We may say then that this meeting in Jerusalem secured a double victory. First, a victory in truth confirming the gospel of grace. And second, a victory of love in preserving the fellowship by sensitive concessions to conscientious Jewish scruples. As Martin Luther put it, Paul was strong in faith and soft in love. Uh, and if you find, if you describe me that way, I'd be very pleased. As long as you don't say, strong in faith, soft in love, and soft in the head. That's just, that's just me. But that's what Martin Luther said. So as concerning the faith, we ought to be invincible and more hard, if it may be, than an adamant stone. But as touching charity, meaning Christian love, putting up with disagreements about minor stuff and making concessions not to offend people needlessly, even with important stuff, we ought to be soft and more flexible than the reed or leaf that's shaken with the wind. 
ready to yield to everything. Or as John Newton, the famous hymn writer, said uh, during a meeting of the Eclectic Society in 1799, that must have been one whale of a meeting, Paul was a reed in non-essentials, an iron pillar in essentials. I think the four things that are mentioned here make sense because uh, they're writing this letter saying, look, Gentiles, you don't have to become Jews to be saved. Just believe in Jesus. However, there are certain things we want you to really avoid for sure as Gentile Christians now. And all four of those things revolved around uh, the worship of Greek Roman gods in temples. In every major city, you'd have many different pagan temples. Apollos would have a, a temple. Zeus would have an, a temple. Aphrodite would have a temple. Uh, and so on and so forth. And every one of these temples, although they had different statues of the god that was their their patron, they had a couple of similar things. For one, you think of the combo meal was something Burger King invented 20 years ago. The combo meal started with Greek pagans because you could a male could go into any Greek pagan uh, temple in the ancient world, and it was the only place you could get fresh meat. So if you like steaks. You had to either buy a steak in the restaurant in the temple or buy it from the meat market behind the temple. But watch this. Any male in that culture could walk in to the temple for one price. Here's the combo meal. For one very uh, convenient price, you could get a full steak dinner with all the trimmings, fresh meat, served by really nice-looking, scantily clad uh, employees of the temple. And then, for that one price, after you're done eating, you could go down to the massage parlor down the hall and do whatever you wanted to do with male or female religious prostitutes. So that that's what their worship was involving, okay? It involved eating blood products and things offered to idols and fornication. Now, the word fornication here is the word porneia in the original Greek. We get pornography from it. It quite often is used in a very broad sense for anything that's morally impure, sexual or otherwise. But it... Quite often, as well, in context, it's talking about some kind of sexual immorality. Okay? Now, I don't think that James or Paul or Barnabas or Peter are thinking, oh my goodness, those dumb Gentile Christians are going to think it's okay for them to be married and have five girlfriends on the side, so please don't do that. I don't think of what he's talking about. The word porneia can be used very generally. I think what they're saying is, and we know this in part because in 1 Corinthians, this is an issue that comes up. There's an issue in the church that says, okay, uh, is it okay for us to buy meat from the market that's behind the pagan temples because that's the only place you can get fresh meat in town? Uh, as opposed to going into the temple proper, buying a steak dinner, and going down the hall of the massage parlor. And basically Paul says, you know, when it comes to buying 